Good afternoon, one and all. Welcome to the forum on the IPS post-election survey on GE 2020. On the 10th of July, Singaporeans went to the polls. The results were that the PAP contesting in the full set of 93 seats was returned in 83 seats. It uh, was returned at a level of popular vote uh, that uh, uh, was, of course, um, to the majority, 60 uh, at 61.2. Um, of course, what was notable was the fact that the leading opposition party, Workers' Party, won 10 seats in this parliament. Also, the third point that was notable is that there will now be two non-constituency members of parliament from a new party, the Progress Singapore Party, uh, with two members there. Therefore, we now have uh, two opposition parties represented in parliament. The Institute of Policy Studies conducted a survey the day after the election in order to understand voters' attitudes and behaviors. We are here to do a, a deep and wide analysis of what shaped the vote on the 10th of July. With me uh, is a member of the IPS research team, Dr. Tio Keiki, to present the findings. She represents us, uh, a team of four, uh, which includes Associate Professor Tan and Sir, of the University of Sing National University of Singapore, as well as Damien Huang, who is part of the IPS research team. Uh, that would be Ms. Uh, Dr. Tio Keiki. After that, she'll be followed by a very dear and old friend of IPS, uh, Dr. Derek Dakuna. Derek is a specialist in comparative uh, politics. Uh, he is, more importantly, uh, the author of a book uh, titled Breakthrough Roadmap for Singapore's Political Future. When he, when he analyzed uh, the results of the general election in 2011, which was considered a watershed election where the Workers' Party made the breakthrough, its first breakthrough in a group representation constituency. Followed, uh, following Derek will be Dr. Lam Pinger, who's senior research fellow at the East Asian Institute. He is also a specialist in comparative politics in East Asia, and his special focus is on Japan as well as Singapore. Uh, he has published widely, and we're very glad that he can join us to give he, us his point of view uh, on the GE in, uh, in this year. And finally, we have a very, very special scholar uh, who joins us from Taipei, Taiwan. He's the Distinguished Research Fellow of the Institute of Political Science of at Academia Sinica, and he's Professor of Political Science at the National Taiwan University. Another old friend of IPS, he is the director of something called the Asian Barometer Survey, which is a regional network of uh, 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 scholars in 14 uh, East Asian countries and five South Asian, Asian countries uh, tracking the views of citizens in this region. He is also uh, the co-chair of the Executive Council of Global Barometer Surveys. And clearly he's someone who will allow us to go from uh, what we understand about the trends in Singapore to the trends in Asia and give us a broader context of what has taken place in Singapore in July 
but also what may take place going forward. So with that quick introduction, I hope you'll join me in turning your attention to uh, the presentation of the findings of the Institute of Policy Studies post-election survey on GE 2020. Dr. Teo has 20 minutes uh, and a lot of interesting data. Uh, we have heard the PAP spokesman give its post-mortem uh, on the election, but what the survey presents would be uh, ideas or indications of how the voters responded to all the parties, a range of issues, and also what they tell us about their general proclivity towards democracy. So over to Keiki, please. Hi, thank you, Jillian. Um, can we have the slides, please? Thank you. So uh, today I'll be presenting on the results of the IPS post-election survey. Next slide, please. This is the content that I'll be covering for today. So I will go very quickly to touch a little on the research background and objectives. Next slide, please. Okay, next. So um, the Perceptions of Policies in Singapore Survey, our POPs as we call it, is an IPS survey series to take snapshots of how our stakeholders respond to changes in policy or the political environment. So the IPS team came up with questions and did the analysis using data from the field work by Degree Census, which is the survey firm that we commissioned. And the research protocol was approved by our NUS Ethics Board. Next slide. So uh, we have actually conducted four waves so far of the post-election survey, which is what I'm presenting today. Uh, for the current wave, we conducted a few work from 11th July to 21st of August. What is uh, the most different for this wave compared to the previous three waves is that um, in the previous three waves, we conducted the, the collection of data only via landline. So we called them on the landline phones. This year, we did landline and on top of that, two more modes, which is on mobile phone and via internet survey. So these are all recruited um, from the degree census panel of respondents. Next slide. So there were a few burning questions when we went into uh, looking at the data. First of all, did COVID-19 matter and did management of this uh, pandemic matter? Uh, second, um, was there a reversion of the upward trend for political pluralism after dipping in 2015? And is it still related to social class? Uh, which segments might have affected the overall change in support for the PAP and WP? How important was online campaigning? And is there any difference between the different modes of collection uh, for data collection that we did? Next slide. So we will touch a little on the methodology, how we conducted this survey. So uh, we had three different modes and so three different uh, response rates. For landlines, it was a 23.6%. It is an industry standard. We had higher proportions of response rates for uh, mobile phones and online because they were uh, recruited from the panel. Uh, after collecting the data, we then checked all the data against uh, national statistics for age, gender and race, and then we weighted the complete sample for these three variables. Next slide. So here you'll see a comparison against the national statistics for age, gender and race, as I have mentioned, we have already weighted them, so they are very similar in proportions. Next. Uh, the next 
Two slides will show you uh, four different variables, housing type, education, income level, and occupation. Um, sorry, please uh, go back to the first slide, thanks. Uh, so these four uh, factors are what we call socioeconomic factors into, uh, when we refer to them uh, together, or SES. So that's how I'll talk about them later. So we have four different categories of housing and um, four, four, five different categories for education. If you look at the diploma and professional qualification, you'll see that the proportions are not very uh, similar. That's because for our survey, we classified uh, professional qualification with university. So there were some uh, differences. Next slide, please. For monthly income, we had four different categories, low, which is zero to $2,000, Low middle, $2,000 uh, to $5,000. Middle middle, $5,000 to $7,000. And upper middle, which is $7,000 and above. Uh, for occupation, we had a service class, intermediate class, and working class. Next slide, please. Now I'll touch on the findings on key topics. The first topics I'll cover is issues. So we took uh, respondents through a list of 15 issues and we asked them how important each is. So they are supposed to give a rate of one to five. So one is not important at all and five is very important. Uh, next slide will show you the ranking. So we actually presented the ranks in this manner. Uh, we have the landline mean score and rank. And then we combined all three different modes together to give you a mixed mode, uh, mean score and rank. If you look across the um, two uh, results, we'll see that actually the mean score and ranks are very similar uh, for these two uh, results. Next, please. Efficient government was the top concern and it has been so since 2006. And it's especially so for the service class and diploma and university education. We included the new item, government's handling of COVID-19 situation because of the current uh, situation. And it was important for 89% uh, of our respondents and particularly so for those who are older with lower income and with uh, secondary or below education. Next, please. We also had three uh, different uh, issues that came up where we saw a market increase in the proportions answering very important. So these are job situation, cost of living, and need for different views in parliament. Next slide, please. So for cost of living, we saw that um, these were, this was an important issue for people aged between 30 to 54 in the working and intermediate class, in the lower income groups and diploma holders. Job situation had very similar demographics, 30 to 54 years old, uh, lower, mid, lower and low, middle, middle um, income groups, Malays and Indians and males. Next. Uh, we see for need for different views in Parliament, there were actually different uh, demographics. So the youngest age band, uh, people in the service class, middle, middle income group, and those with higher education. So there was a slight divergence of how people prioritize issues. Next, please. The next topic I'll cover is candidates' traits. So we asked respondents how important a list of 10 uh, character traits were uh, in shaping their voting decision. Again, they are asked to rate it from one to five. Next, please. This is the ranking that we found. Again, very similar uh, results when we have the landline and mixed mode scores. Uh, honesty is the top trait. Next, please. We'll see that the top trade honesty was uh, especially important for the service class, upper middle income bracket, 
uh, people with higher education and people living in private housing. Uh, being a fair person mattered, especially to people who are younger and who had diploma uh, certification. Characteristic of uh, working, uh, hardworking or being committed was especially important to Malays and Indians and secondary to diploma holders. Next, please. The next topic is communication channels. So we asked them uh, on the list of 11 communication platforms, again, one to five, on the importance of these channels. Uh, one of the items was internet. So if internet was stated very important or important, they were asked to uh, answer a follow-up question where they had to name in an open-ended source uh, three up to three specific internet-based platforms. So next. This is the uh, general ranking. So we see that this year, internet is first. Uh, it's not surprising given that we were mostly online during the election campaigns. So again, the landline and mixed mode had very similar results. Next, please. Uh, this is a representation of the people who answered the internet-based platform uh, question. So we see that Facebook came up top. It was already top in 2015. This year, it remains there. And for the mixed mode, actually a larger proportion named Facebook as one of their platforms. We also see uh, mainstream media platforms, CNA and Straits Times, as part of this group. Um, last, in 2015, uh, Twitter was ranked fourth, but this year it dropped out. Instead, Instagram came in fourth, and likely because uh, many political parties and candidates made use of this platform uh, quite a lot this year. Next, please. So we found that internet was important to the same group as compared to 2011 and 15, which were the younger voters, people in the service class. And the lower the age and higher the occupational class, the more influential internet was for them. Meanwhile, TV and newspapers were still important, especially for older voters, the less educated and people with lower income. Next, please. Because of this year, we had to move election rallies online and it was found to be especially important for younger voters, people in the intermediate and service class, people in the middle middle income group and those with post-secondary or above education. Next, please. So next topic is credibility of parties. We asked uh, respondents to rate different parties on how credible they found it. Uh, there were many parties that contested in the elections. However, in order to uh, prevent survey fatigue for our respondents, we chose to um, only ask them on six parties. And how we chose these parties were those who obtained the highest numerical votes in 2020. So uh, they were asked to express agreement or disagreement to the statement, the party is a credible party. Next, please. This is the rank, uh, ranking based on landline and mixed modes. And we find that actually, again, not much difference between these two results. And also that the ranking is the same as how uh, the actual number of votes were received in 2020. Next, please. So here we see the uh, more detailed breakdowns. Uh, when we look at the PAP scores, we see that for mean score, there was a slight drop uh, compared to 2015. Answering very uh, strongly agree did not change very much. However, the proportion answering agree actually dropped compared to 2015, while the proportion answering neutral uh, increased. 
For the WP, we saw an increase in mean score compared to 2015, uh, with the proportion answering very uh, strongly agree, uh, expanding for this year. And also um, the proportion saying disagree uh, growing smaller this year. PSB only has one data point because it is a new party this year. Next, please. The next three parties are SDP, NSP, and People's Voice. For People's Voice, again, it is a new party, so there's only one data point. Next, please. We did a deeper analysis of PAP and WP results. So when we compare across age, the solid line is uh, the results for 2020. The dotted line is for 2015. So we'll see that the proportion answering strongly agree or agree actually dropped overall across the age bands with the largest in decreases coming from those aged 40 to 49 years old. Next, please. So, uh, for the WP, we see that the solid line is higher than the dotted line, and the increases, largest increases came from those in the oldest age bands. Next, please. So here we see a comparison across ethnicity for these two years. The blue dots are for 2020, the red dots are for 2015, and we see that there's a general downward shift across ethnicities. Com uh, next, please. For WP, we saw a general upward shift for all ethnicities with uh, increases in the rating uh, for strongly agree and agree in amongst those in the smaller minority groups. Next, please. So uh, overall, it was credible, especially with those older, with lower education and females. For the WP and PSP, they were found to be, cre to be credible by people who are uh, younger in the service class, um, those with secondary or above education, new or first-time voters, and males. Next, please. Um, for the PAP, the drop in scores, other than um, from age and ethnicity, were for those with secondary or diploma education, the low or low middle income groups, uh, people living in one to three room flats, and males. Next, please. For WP, the increases in uh, proportions of people answering strongly agree or agree uh, came from other than age and ethnicity for those uh, in service class, post-secondary education, those who are not first-time voters, uh, people living in one to three room flats and females. Next, please. So we also have conducted cluster analysis Cluster analysis is a statistical tool that we have been using historically to uh, examine the degree of support for political pluralism in Singapore. So how we did this was to uh, look at uh, the answers to five different statements in our survey. First one, uh, if respondents say that uh, there is a need for checks and balances, there is a need for different views, that it is important to have elected opposition members, that the whole election system is not fair, that there is a need to change the election system, these people are grouped in the pluralist cluster. If they answer opposite to this, they are grouped in the conservative cluster. Next slide, please. So if we uh, have an eclectic mix of views across these different uh, responses, uh, we put them in the swing cluster. So here we present the results for landline modes. Uh, the reason being we have done the same analysis for previous years, so we want to have a direct comparison. So uh, next, please. So we'll see here the breakdown of uh, the different clusters across the years. 
Um, if we look at the red uh, pluralist uh, triangles, we'll see that actually there has been a small expansion from 2006 to 11, and then uh, shrinking in 2015. And this year, there's been a, a larger proportion comparatively. For the swing voters, however, we see that actually it has expanded by a lot this year, and it's now more than half of the respondent group. Next, please. So we looked at the pluralist, uh, so the proportion of pluralists across different demographic uh, uh, factors. So age-wise, we saw that um, there was highest increase in proportion for the youngest group. Next, please. We did not find any uh, statistical significant difference across housing types. Next, please. For occupation, we found that uh, for the service class, there was the highest increase. Next. And for income, we found that the highest increase came from the low, uh, the low income group. Next. Education-wise, um, we saw that those with post-secondary education, which means A-level, N-level, and NITEC certificates, uh, had the largest increase in proportions. Next. So we saw that actually uh, there was a higher proportion of pluralists in the higher socioeconomic and younger age segments. Um, for those with larger statistical shifts towards pluralism uh, were those uh, who were aged 21 to 29 in the service class with lower household income and had post-secondary education. Next. Uh, we also examined the different issues that may have uh, made them prior that they have prioritized. So we see that actually conservative cluster has slightly different concerns compared to the swing because they uh, prioritize government's handling of COVID situation and government help for the needy. Um, while the other two looked at checks and balances and different views in parliament. However, we do see that uh, across all three clusters, there is a prioritizing of need for efficient government, which means that across the political spectrum in Singapore, uh, there is a high importance attributed to efficiency in government. Next. So modality differences, we tried to compare across different modes of collection. We found that online respondents were slightly different in that they tended to have higher mean scores for most issues, candidates' characteristics and communication channels. They were more likely to be pluralists and less likely to say that the PAP had governed well and that their lives had improved. However, no difference in the credibility scores. Next, please. This is a table that we can come back to later, but this is a complete breakdown of the different items where there was significant difference. Next. So in conclusion, we go back to our burning questions that I stated earlier. Uh, for issues, we found that political ideals were important, but the government's handling of the COVID situation was also important. The job situation and cost of living were two issues where we found uh, significant increases and only amongst uh, specific people who had concerns about their livelihood issues. Um, the need for different views were deemed more important by people in the service class and the youngest age band. Next. Uh, in terms of party credibility, PAP has the highest mean score and highest proportion of those who strongly agreed with the statement. The larger drops compared to 2015 were for those who were aged between 40 to 49, also those with um, slightly lower education, low to low middle income, uh, one to three room HDB dwellers and males. For WP, there was an increase in mean scores with uh, larger rises among seniors 
And for those in the PMET group, post-secondary education and above, HDB one to three room dwellers and females. Next. Cluster analysis for that we found that the pluralist, uh, the trend of pluralists being younger and of higher socioeconomic status were still, uh, still holds with uh, sharper shifts uh, in those with the youngest age band service class, low monthly education and post-secondary education. Next. Communication channels, not surprisingly, the internet became most influential with Facebook, CNA and um, Instagram being the three, uh, one, three of the, uh, the most influential channels. Next. Uh, in terms of modality differences, we did find some differences, particularly between online respondents and those who responded via landline and mobile. And these uh, online respondents were likely to be pluralist, less likely to say that Singapore has been well governed since 2015, uh, prioritize fairness in government policy, and turn to a wider range of communication uh, channels, including internet, e-rallies, and television. And with that, um, thank you for your time. I'll uh, pass the time on. Thank you. Thank you, Keiki. Uh, I hope it, uh, that that uh, presentation gives our audience uh, some background, some insights into the results of GE 2020. Let me repeat that again, that uh, the PAP garnered 61.2% of valid votes in GE 2020. This was a swing downwards of 8.7% from 2015, uh, where it uh, garnered 69.9% of valid votes. On the side of the leading opposition party, Workers' Party, Workers' Party garnered 11.2% uh, of valid votes. Uh, it might surprise you to know it was just a shade of 1.28% less than what it garnered in uh, 2015 which was 12.5% of valid votes. But I believe that that is really the result also of the fact that when you look at the whole pie, there were far more opposition parties in, uh, running in GE 2020. So to give us a clearer uh, take uh, on, or deeper take on how the parties performed in GE 2020, their strategies uh, and uh, the outcomes and what these uh, pretend for the future. Uh, we have Derek uh, now, and I hope audience, you will give him 10 minutes of your time. Um, meanwhile, we invite you to give, to send us your comments and questions on Facebook Live. Feel free to type away uh, and uh, we'll be able to respond to your questions when we've uh, gone through these formal presentations. So go ahead and uh, respond as you uh, uh, join with us to think about uh, what the results of 2020 meant and what our data tells us, as well as what our experts have to say about uh, all of that. So it's over to Derek now. You have 10 minutes. Uh, thank you, Jillian. Uh, let me just sketch out a few issues. My presentation differs greatly from that of Dr. Teo's and the IPS survey in both style and content. That presentation looked at the issue from the point of view of the voters. Mine will look at it largely from the perspective of the political parties. Though both presentations might be at a tangent to each other, they are actually quite complementary. Let me now establish some context. 
the first context is my contention that an increasing number of people have a munition view of the world, viewing things largely in terms of a struggle between the forces of good and evil. The second context relates to how political party should be viewed. Former British Prime Minister Tony Blair was characterized as a person who viewed political power as a priceless Ming vase being carried across a polished floor by a museum curator. Meaning, if you wish to attain and maintain political power, you should always adopt a cautious approach and not get bogged down by insignificant elements or those on the fringes, or you will slip and the vase will be shattered. Let me now just highlight five points. Point one, G2020 was a good result for the Workers' Party and a bad result for the PAP. A bad result does not equate to a disaster for the PAP as claimed by some foreign academics. The PAP secured 83 out of 93 fully elected seats and its popular vote capped above the 60% level as it did in GE 2011, constituting not just statistical but psychological significance. Point two, all the fringe parties that went into GE 2020, and I do not consider the PSP to be a fringe party by the way, all the fringe parties were not expecting to win any seats, but were banking on the possibility that there would be an implosion within the WP because of the litigation over AHTC and the fact that the WP only barely clung on to Aljunia in GE 2015. So their calculations were that a WP implosion would mean NCMP seats could be picked up by them. They calculated wrongly. Point three, the contention I make is that the majority of Singaporeans are to varying degrees socially and politically conservative in nature. Pushing this point further, we can draw a distinction, distinction between an authoritarian regime on the one hand and a significant portion of a population who display largely authoritarian traits on the other. Is the government to be ascribed 100% blame for whatever ills are afflicting Singapore or has much of the population enable such ills? It is noteworthy that in the wake of G2020, many commentators ascribe 100% blame to the government for virtually everything. Point four, the actual results of G2020 underscore what has held true for the past three decades, that only a moderate alternative to the PAP, which is not too confrontational in nature, will be able to take seats away from the PAP. The WP referred to itself as it did in GE 2015 as rational, responsible, and respectable. There is no for R, no radical. The WP has no radical agenda and quite right too. Even as the WP has characterized itself as rational, responsible and respectable, a small but vocal segment of voters, largely hardcore anti-PAP voters were well before the COVID-19 pandemic already infected with another virus. 
the virus of delusion. They choose not to be guided by the evidence. They work on the basis that their personal situation is more important than objective facts. As such, they create their own reality accentuated in social media echo chambers. They attack the WP if they see that the party is not robustly opposing the PAP and not supporting those who run afoul of laws that they consider anti-democratic or socially unjust. A British parliamentary saying goes as follows. The opposition occupies the benches in front of you, but the enemy sits behind you. For the WP, the PAP is the opposition, but a real enemy constitutes a number of radicals in the hardcore anti-PAP element who are infected with the virus of delusion. One should remember that three decades ago, Mr. Cham Sitong built up a politically moderate SDP only to see others in the party move it to a confrontational direction destroying opposition chances for a generation. Already in this election, one activist claimed that Mr. Chum, when he was an MP, had been humiliated by the PAP. This was clearly an attempt to revise recent political history. This would have escaped most people's attention, but it came across as an attempt to create a false new narrative about the 1990s. If you look at the WP's GE 2020 manifesto, it is the most detailed manifesto put out by all the parties. It contains such a level of detail that you can take it that if you do not find what you are looking for in it, then the WP does not support such a policy. The WP has therefore been upfront about what it supports and what it does not support. No one can claim that the WP secured 10 parliamentary seats on the basis of a false prospectus. Point five, what is the prognosis for the PAP, the WP, and the PSP? The PAP can claw back support, at least in terms of regaining part of the popular vote it lost, but it has to address concretely the serious concerns that led some voters moving away from the party in GE 2020, accentuated by the pernicious effects of the pandemic. These remedies include ensuring that wages keep up with the rising costs of living, improving job security, coming up with a viable solution to HDB lease decay adopting measures to allow Singaporeans greater access to their CPF monies and so on. For the WP, it might be too cliched to suggest that its ability to enlarge its parliamentary presence is only constrained by the size of its ambitions. It is not as simple as that. There are a number of factors to consider when looking at the WP's prospects at the next election. Even if the PAP makes a fight back at the national level, as it now appears to be doing, the WP would not be too adversely affected as it retains an effective localized strategy concentrated largely on the east of the island. Also, the WP's approach is to knit together 
a coalition of voters across most demographics. It will not attempt to put together an unrealistic coalition across the alternative parties when the strength of the parties is so uneven and the policies and approaches to opposition so different. That will merely dilute the WP's identity and erode its electoral prospects. Moving on to the PSP, the question is whether the two PSP and CMPs can return to parliament as fully elected MPs and whether they will bring other PSP candidates with them. To answer that question, we should look at recent history for guidance. It would indicate that if you were a WP and CMP, your chances of becoming a fully elected MP are 80%. On the other hand, if you were an NCMP from another party, then your chances of returning to parliament are severely limited. The PSP lacks branding and with no fully elected MPs, it will be a major challenge for the party to establish a viable presence on the ground in West Coast GRC. And the possibility of the PSP establishing a tacit alliance with the WP is somewhat doubtful at this stage. After initial comments by the WP leadership of cooperating with the PSP, that, un that early unqualified support appeared to have been dialed back somewhat when the new leader of the opposition gave his maiden speech in parliament. The support is now more equivocal and conditional. The fact is that there are significant policy differences between the PSP and the WP, and these differences cannot be papered over. The other alternative parties, mostly fringe elements, will likely be shut out because they will be denied the oxygen of publicity. They can only rely mostly on social media. The mainstream media will likely follow what is the general convention globally, that only political parties which have a legislative presence should get media coverage. If you're talking about the maturing of Singapore's politics, that indeed should be the way forward by following established international practice. Let me leave it there. Thank you. Thank you, Derek. Thank you for highlighting to us the strengths of the different parties. And in particular, the discussion on WP I felt was interesting. You said that by way of policy, they are moderate. By way of tactics, they are local. And they place priority in terms of uh, building a coalition of citizens rather than a coalition of parties. Um, with that, I think we'd love to uh, give the time over to uh, Dr. Lam Pinga. Pinga, give us your take on GE 2020, what mattered to voters, parties, uh, and then zoom out a little bit and tell us what you think, uh, th how this, thing, uh, this compares with other uh, jurisdictions or countries that you understand well. Over to you, Pinga, you have 10 minutes. Thank you, Gillian. And uh, good afternoon, friends, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, heartfelt thanks to the IPS team for inviting me and uh, big thank you to the web audience for listening uh, despite your busy schedule. Uh, first impressions of the survey. I think this uh, 2020 IPS survey 
it's really uh, a gold mine of uh, information. It's a snapshot of G220 and its aftermath. It's even more valuable if we were to compare the IPS survey of 211, 2015, and 2.2.0. So uh, we should not look at it uh, in isolation, but as a, a time series, a time series no? of almost a decade. And if we were to look at it as a time series, we can extrapolate and tease out the interesting trends in Singapore electoral politics uh, suggestive uh, in the years ahead. Um, so in a nutshell, simply put, G2020 is a new normal election. We heard that word, you know, new normal election for 2011 uh, GE. So it is a continuation of a trend seen in G211. And with hindsight, GE2015 is actually an anomaly with the demise of founding father Lee Kuan Yew and of course the joy of a bicentennial year. And the PAP did exceptionally well in G215. Huh? But uh, I would say G215 should not be uh, the benchmark of how we look at the performance, uh, the appeal, the mentality of the electorate because that's an exceptional, it's, that's an anomaly. So it'll be uh, more useful if we were to compare 220 with 2011. Of course, this begs the question, what is a new normal in Singapore politics? Uh, number one, uh, the opposition is here to stay. Uh, there were talks of uh, opposition wipeout and so on, you know, turned out to be so untrue. Indeed, uh, like uh, Gillian and Derek have said, the Workers' Party had actually made modest gains. Not only the Workers' Party, even uh, a party like SDP, uh, a party which is considered to be relatively radical by many Singaporeans, uh, actually did very well. You know, Paul Tambia obtained 46.6%. Um, Chisun Juan obtained 45.2%. So uh, I would respectfully disagree with Derek by saying that uh, I, I agree with him to a large extent that, hey, Workers' Party, you know, uh, as a watchdog, not as a mad dog, you know, in Singapore politics. But for SDP, it's relatively speaking left of center, and yet it did have some appeal to a significant segment of the Singapore electorate. So let's not rule that out. I think they have their niches, you know, Workers' Party appealed to uh, support across the board, but SDP had its supporters too. What is the other uh, a feature of this new normal? It is actually the rising importance of social media as a channel of political communication. Gone were the days where the ruling party you know, has a monopoly of uh, information, mainstream media, but not anymore. Uh, so if this trend of a new normal in Singapore politics were to persist, were to unfold in the next decade or two, we can anticipate that the PAP will remain probably remain as a perennial party in power, but with a lower vote share, lower vote share and seats in parliament. The PAP may even lose its two-thirds majority and the power to change the constitution at will. Um, and this scenario may pan out if it does not relate better 
to a younger, better educated and more demanding electorate. And with generational change, the Singapore electorate will be concerned with both material and post-material values. In fact, uh, I, I think that for the 202 GE, the ruling party was caught you know, between two pincers, caught between two pincers, uh, those who have material concerns and those who have post-material aspirations. So what are these material concerns? Uh, I already mentioned uh, by Derek, job security, housing, transportation, immigration, rising social inequality. And what are these post-material issues? Uh, values, aspirations like citizens having a louder voice in governance, greater pluralism, fairness. This come out very strongly in the IPS survey, fairness, gender and minority rights and equality, environmental issues like clean energy and climate change. So this is a challenge, you know, by the PAP. It is not just, uh, hey, you know, uh, demographic change, younger voters, better educated, higher aspirations, but also bread and butter issues. So in two, two, they, they were caught in between, you know, uh, caught in between this, uh, these two issues. Huh? Okay, uh, my takeaway from the 2020 IPS surveys, because of time limitation, I'll just mention three. My first takeaway is that uh, G2020 will be remembered as a black swan COVID-19 election. Okay, no festival or fiscal rallies, voters went to the polling centers with masks and gloves. And the burning question of the IPS 2020 survey is, did the management of COVID-19 matter? Did it matter? Yes, it mattered. Indeed, it mattered. But to me, the survey finding is very interesting. It's counterintuitive. Why? Even though the management of COVID-19 matters to voters, the voters, the survey suggested that voters actually ranked some issues ahead of COVID-19 management, ranked ahead of of COVID-19 management. And what are they? Number one, the need for efficient government. The need for efficient government. And number two, fairness of government policy. So these two issues, there were many issues, but these two issues were ranked ahead, higher than COVID-19 management. So COVID-19 pandemic hit us bang, like a sledgehammer, but it will be a non-issue in the next general election. In the next general election, the pandemic will, will, will be over by then. Uh, but issues identified as important by voters, especially efficiency and fairness, will remain salient in the next general election. Okay, my second takeaway. Uh, this is the electorate's evaluation of the credibility of political parties. Uh, not surprisingly, the PAP is considered to be the most credible party, but it really has no room for complacency. The next GE is likely to be even tougher for presumptive Prime Minister Heng Swee Kiat and his team between the hearts, the minds, and the wallets of Singaporeans. Uh, if we were to look at the IPS time series, uh, 211520, uh, the credibility of the Workers' Party and the Singapore Democratic Party has increased significantly. So if you can have a look at the, uh, the attitudes uh, of the voters towards these two political parties, not just the Workers' Party, but also to the uh, smaller SDP, um, if the Workers' Party were to work very hard at the grassroots at its constituencies and in Parliament, uh, 
it is likely to keep Hougang SMC, Aljunied GRC, and Sengkang GRC in the next general election. And given the twin trends of demographic change more amenable to political pluralism and rising credibility of the Workers' Party, it is not inconceivable that the Workers' Party may win another SMC or GRC in the next GE. Again, I'm not clairvoyant, but <laughs> I wouldn't really rule it out. So Singaporeans, voters are very performance-based. Okay, it's not just what you what you talk, but how you walk. So it's really up to the Workers' Party, how they perform at the grassroots. Third takeaway, eh? this is my third takeaway because of time consideration. Um, the issue of fairness in public policy and whether candidates and parties have empathy for fairness. I think this came up quite uh, quite prominently for me, the issue of fairness, okay? And the IPS survey uh, captured the issue of fairness in public policy and also what they think about voters who are proxies for political parties. Interestingly, in the IPS survey, uh, according to the ranking, uh, what is number one? The number one most important attraction to them is honesty. Number two, has to be fair. Fair candidate, fair party. And what are the other qualities ranked below? Hardworking and committed, efficient, they can understand people, and so on and so forth. So uh, what really caught my eye is that fairness was ranked quite highly, uh, number two. Um, and in Singapore, the issue of fairness is also tied to the privileges of elites and the fear that the system of governance in Singapore may not treat the non-elites fairly and equally. Okay, this is beyond the scope of my uh, my little ten minutes, you know, because uh, Party Liani, uh, you know, this is the talk of the town. Um, it's, it really boils down to the issue of elitism, privileges, and fairness. Okay, uh, this is beyond the scope of my talk. But I will just concentrate on the issue of fairness and G2020. Uh, I think it's a harbinger of this issue was a PAP candidate, Ivan Lim. He quit as a candidate after online allegations of his elitist attitude. These are allegations, huh? his elitist attitude in the military and work. There are so many people coming, coming out, say that this guy, you know, he has an attitude problem, he's elitist, right? Uh, Another issue of fairness is uh, Reisha Kang, uh, 26 years old, I think, Workers' Party candidate in Sengkang. She's a member of parliament now. Uh, very controversial because her Facebook post uh, in May 2002 criticized the Singapore law enforcement authorities. What did she say? For discriminating against Singaporean citizens. And she said that rich Chinese and white people were treated differently under the law. It is, this is actually very, very controversial. Uh, people in my generation, we think this is uh, Obi Marcus, you know, uh, something which she shouldn't have said. But I've spoken to some of my uh, young colleagues. They, they, they think that many young people uh, perceive that that is so. Okay, so I think there's a generational gap. <laughs> Maybe uh, the generation of me and Jillian with some of these youngsters, uh, they, they belong to a generation where things are much more freewheeling, you know, in the internet, 
it's anything goes, you know, but this is how they perceive. And, and not only young people, but some ethnic minorities in Singapore believe that the system is not totally fair. Okay? This is a reality. Whether you think it is uh, right or not, it is a perception. Uh, I will read the 2020 IPS survey with a cautionary note. Huh? And, uh, uh, and, this, and the point is, the Singapore system must remain fair and seem to be fair by the masses to maintain national cohesion. And public policy must be effective and fair to mitigate against rising social economic inequality. So rising social inequality is not peculiar to Singapore, it's across the world, huh? just technological change, globalization, even though there's a degree of deglobalization, it's, 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 it's a reality, it's, it's a hard truth, but how do we deal with it, Singaporean and society? So to the extent the ruling PAP and opposition parties can address this question, and this I think will impact on their electoral support in the next general election. Because of time factors, I think I have to be very brief. I'll just uh, answer the question, where do we go from here? With the party politics in Latin, where do we go from here? I think that's a speculation that general election has given rise to an incipient two-party system. The two-party system in Singapore. I very much uh, doubt it. I, I think Singapore is unlikely to see a rotation of a ruling party like the United States, uh, US, no Anglo-Saxon models, and even across the causeway, Malaysia, you know, rotation of uh, ruling parties. I, I very much doubt it. Um, what I'm going to say is a bit controversial. Uh, if you if you were to put a gun against my head and ask me to uh, anticipate what is the likely uh, party system. Uh, in Singapore, it's not going to be a PAP, a monopoly of all the seats in parliament, you know, after the Barisan Socialists walked out. I think it's more likely to see the emergence of a one and a half party system, a one and a half party system within the next decade or two. Okay, um, Some of uh, us may scratch their head. What is this guy talking about one and a half party system? I'll explain to you. I'm a Japan specialist. No? An example of a one-and-a-half-party system was the Japanese party system between 1955 and 1993. Why one-and-a-half-party? Why one-and-a-half-party system in Japan? The perennial party in power was the conservative Liberal Democratic Party, the LDP. And then we have a permanent party in opposition, the Japan Socialist Party. For almost... For decades, the Japan Socialist Party won on the average around half the seats, sometimes less, half of the seats of the ruling LDP. It, it, the ruling, the opposition party will have a substantial presence in parliament, but roughly like half the seats of the LDP. But this one and a half party system did not preclude the presence of a few smaller uh, political parties in parliament, in the Japanese parliament, and Japanese diet, like the Komito, which is a clean government party, a Buddhist party, and the Japan Communist Party. So these smaller parties, okay, there's a time I have to uh, extend. Uh, uh, Japan Socialist Party, Pirenal Party in power. So the thing is, Japan is a democracy then and now. Okay, So uh, my question mark is, in the years ahead, next decade or two, will the Workers' Party be other prominent party in parliament, but it will not displace the, the PAP. PAP's vote shares and seats 
will get. Um, is it inconceivable that one scenario for Singapore to follow, maybe the, the uh, Japanese analogy, when the PAP is like the LDP, LDP have been in power longer than the PAP since 1955, and then the Workers' Party would be like the former Japan Socialist Party with a substantial number of seats, you know? I'll end by saying that uh, if such a Japanese scenario would emerge, then it will be a Goldilocks outcome for a majority of voters. Why so? The PAP remaining the perennial party in power for political stability and predictability, while the Workers' Party will be a considerable opposition, providing checks and balances in parliament. And to quote Jameis, no blank checks, no blank checks for the PAP to the PAP. And I end by saying that one and a half party system does not preclude smaller parties like SDP from snatching uh, a few seats in parliament within the next year or two. Thank you very much. Thank, Thank you, you very much, Pinger. Uh -huh. Thank you for reminding us of the uh, scenario of a one and a half party system. Uh, it's been in existence in Japan, doesn't make Japan any less democratic, but uh, there's the stability there. Although in Singapore, I think uh, you've also noted in your remarks that there is a secular or a consistent trend of support for political competition and pluralism in Singapore, especially among the young and the higher social economic class. So the opposition is here to stay and your question or rather what you were trying to address is the size of that representation within parliament. Thank you for your take and for uh, introducing to us that comparative analysis. Now uh, it's time for Professor Chu, for Yun Han to take us through a masterclass of uh, comparative analysis as we introduced him. He is actually the guardian of a very large data set of voter attitudes. Uh, not just in 14 East Asian countries, but five South Asian countries, and has an overview of all the findings of the barometer survey across the planet. What, where does Singapore stand in terms of the uh, um, you know, rankings or uh, the support for the concept of democracy across Asia? And what really does democracy mean to Asians? Over to you, Yunhan. You have uh, about 10 minutes. Uh, uh, I know you have a lot of data to share and uh, we beg uh, the audience's indulgence to uh, allow him to get through a very rich deck of slides. Over to you, Yunan. Thank you, uh, uh, Julian. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I would like to offer you um, some comparative data uh, on the basis of the uh, the, the cross-national survey under the auspice of uh, Asian Brahms survey. Uh, and so we can compare uh, Singapore with the rest of Asia. Uh, and generally speaking, I would say on many indicators, Singapore uh, fare uh, favorably, you know, the, in our survey. Uh, maybe, you know, Singaporean might feel that their systems still have a lot of problem uh, many challenge ahead, uh, but in terms of regional legitimacy, uh, things like that, actually Singapore, uh, compared to other Asian uh, political system, I would say uh, outperform uh, a great majority of its neighbor. Uh, can we have the slide, please? Uh, 
Yeah. Um, next. Uh, we, we do have a, a website, you know, the people are always welcome to browse through. We have many uh, interesting articles and, and, and those data are downloadable. Next. Next, please. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say one thing about Asian Barometer Survey. Uh, that is, this large-scale survey covered the half of the world population. Where we know we cover uh, China, India, you know, plus many other uh, very populated countries. So it's a very significant cross-national comparative survey. Next. So we have conducted five-wave survey uh, over the last uh, almost 20 years. Uh, Singapore joined uh, uh, ABS uh, uh, during the second wave. Uh, that's around 2005. Uh, however, the, the latest wave, the fifth wave, uh, the, the survey in Singapore is still pending you know, due to the COVID-19. Uh, so in a way, my presentation will be constrained a little bit because the data we have as the latest uh, for Singapore is actually uh, about five years ago. Uh, but still, you know, we can look at, you know, the, the long-term trend on the basis of data we have. Next. Uh, this is more detail of the survey schedule. Next. Okay, um, we, we apply a very generic item about support for democracy across uh, the region uh, on a regular basis. Uh, and on this particular indicator, you know, uh, you know, we can say, well, there's a good news that is democracy is embraced by a great majority of East Asian citizens everywhere. Um, so there's overwhelming positive support for democracy as an, uh, a model of governance. Uh, you know, you can see the data next, yeah. Uh, so everywhere, you know, you get like, you know, more than 75%, you know, endorsement of this statement. Um, and in some cases, you know, the intensity of support is very high, you know, like in uh, Cambodia, about one third of the respondents say, you know, strongly agree. Um, so actually there's not much variation uh, whether you know you ask pe people in Singapore uh, or in Japan, uh, Japan, you know, which is, I would say, uh, objectively speaking, is a full democracy. Uh, but but in cases like uh, Vietnam, you know, which uh, most experts would not recognize it as a as a uh, democracy, but still, you know, you get more more than seventy percent population you know, supporting this idea. Okay, so this. Item doesn't tell us much. Uh, not only that, behind this rosy picture, actually, uh, we uh, encounter many puzzles. Next. Okay, the first puzzle is that, uh, you know, we found out that many uh, Asian citizens have mixed feeling toward democracy. Okay, you know, they don't necessarily consider democracy is always the best under all circumstances. And they don't have a great deal of trust uh, in what we call the uh, effectiveness of democracy, whether the democracy can solve the problem the country uh, is facing. Uh, give you some data. Next. Say, you know, the, uh, toward this statement, uh, democracy is all, uh, always preferable to any other kind of government. Well, uh, not. Uh, you know, everyone uh, agree with that, you know, across Asia. Uh, actually, on this particular item, you know, Singaporeans seem to 
to have a lot of reservation about the uh, unequivocal support uh, or identify embrace democracy as you know always most more preferable than any other form of government. Uh, even in a country like Taiwan, you know, there are a large number of uh, people who have reservations. So only you know like around less than 50%, you know, the, give the unconditional support or embracement of democracy. Uh, and this happened especially to many of those emerging democracies like the Philippines and this, you know, those reservations have gone up rather than going, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know uh, gone down, you know, as time uh, passes. And Mongolia, you know, you know, we worry a lot because, you know, obviously there are a lot of people who become suspicious uh, toward democracy. Uh, and, and so this is, you know, something, you know, the, uh, to be reckoned with. Next. And, and, and also about the, what we call the efficacy of democracy. Again, um, you know, uh, there, there are a lot of variation and in particular, uh, you know, in, in places like the Philippines, in Taiwan, uh, also, there's a lot, of, a lot of reservation. Hong Kong, maybe, you know, uh, there are more people, you know, uh, believing democratic efficacy, but still, you know, it's at most about 56%. Uh, and Singaporeans also have a very mixed uh, attitude toward this, uh, this uh, particular uh, aspect. Ne next one. So this is, uh, uh, you know, puzzle number one. Uh, the puzzle number two is how people evaluate how democratic their country is or has been. Uh, and we use this 10 point scale, okay? And th th this outcome might surprise you. Next one, yeah. Next, yeah, please. Well, first of all, uh, no uh, political system in East Asia, that includes Southeast Asia as well, achieve, you know, uh, you know, really high mark. Okay, the 10 point is the perfect score. Okay, and you can take six, you know, like the passing grade. Okay, so most people, most country in region, you know, they are hoovering around this uh, passing grade, <laughs> which means that, you know, in their, uh, you know, through their eyes, they think that their current system uh, have a long way to go, you know, uh, before it can be accepted as a full democracy. Uh, this happened to, especially to quite a few young democracies like uh, Mongolia and, and, and the Philippines. And, 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 and interesting, you know, some systems like Singapore or Thailand, uh, they might be uh, characterized by some political science as hybrid regime. They get slightly higher grade, but not impressive uh, also, okay? Um, so this is uh, another interesting you know, uh, question that we, we you know we try to, uh, to to tackle next. Yeah, um, and, and and this is a long term trend. Okay, and uh, it's it's uh, you know basically you know most countries struggling you know uh, hovering around this uh, uh, this uh, passing grade you know like six point something or you no know, lower than seven. Uh, there's not that much changes, you know, the, uh, uh, over time, except in Vietnam, as country opened up more, uh, now they understand that their country actually is less democratic than, uh, uh, you know, they had thought before. Next. Now, uh, although, you know, uh, uh, some people might question the outcome, say, well, you know, once you use statement, you know, uh, with the D words, 
sometimes it will generate the so-called the social desirability problem. So we try something else, you know, also, you know, give us uh, other kind of benchmark next. So we come up with the uh, next, please, yeah. Next slide, yeah. So we measure uh, what we call regime support, okay? And this is a, uh, actually a very sophisticated measurement with the five items. Uh, but let me just give you a, a gist of you know, what we found next. You know, uh, basically, uh, you know, the, a lot of non-democratic gene in, in this region, like, uh, like China and, and Vietnam, uh, they actually enjoy a much higher level of popular legitimacy than a uh, democratic regime on every, virtually every indicator, you know, uh, uh, of this particular uh, scale. Uh, so this is quite puzzling, you know, very puzzling. Um, uh, so because supposedly uh, a lot of political scientists in the West will tell you that supposedly democratic regime should enjoy a more, much more robust, deep-seated uh, regime democracy than non-democratic regime. But empirically, this is entirely not the case. Next. Uh, give you, you know, just uh, some data. This is one of the questions. Thinking in general, I'm proud of our system of government. Okay, congratulations. Singaporean, at least, you know, 10 years ago, okay. And the rest of the higher support of the current political regime. Okay, another government, the political system itself, okay. And, and, and also look at, you know, the, the very high score, uh, you know, the nine registered and Malaysia uh, and, and, and Thailand. Uh, and remember this already after the military, you know, coup. And look at, you know, such a dis disparaging low level of regime legitimacy, you know, in the case of Japan, Korea, Taiwan. This is, you know, very, very shocking. Actually, a lot of my colleagues in the West, they couldn't really digest, you know, or absorb <laughs> this, this, you know, a very dispar disparaging number. Um, um, but, but actually, you know, uh, in the following, uh, I, I tried to, you know, offer some explanation why that has been the case. Next. Okay. Uh, in the interest of time, actually, I'm going to skip most of the slide uh, in terms of figure, you know, but, but they give you a very consistent picture, you know, uh, across country and, and, and also over time. So I don't have to repeat that. Next. And, and also next. Okay. Uh, and, you know, very similar picture. Next. Uh, next. Yeah. Uh, this is another item, you know, you can see, you know, Singapore also fair, uh, very favorably, saying that over the long run, our government system is capable of solving the problem our country faces. Okay. Uh, much higher than, you know, what Hong Kong, you know, will think of their, their own political system. Next. Uh, and among uh, the youth you know, under 35, the pattern is similar, okay? It's not uh, very different from, you know, the, the, the elder generation, uh, next. Uh, also uh, similar, next, next. Uh, okay, this is summary score, okay? Uh, we compare, uh, you know, 10 years ago uh, with five years ago, wave three and wave four, uh, so on average, based on the scale, five item scale, okay, uh, Vietnam registered the highest level of uh, regime legitimacy, okay, um, 
and 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 other country who you know their only every score is only in the politics territory include mainland China, Singapore, uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia, and Malaysia, uh, and Cambodia. None of them are, I would say. Uh, perfect democracy. <laughs> Maybe you know Indonesia better, you know, uh, in terms of uh, quality of democracy. But but on the other hand, uh, countries that are widely regarded as you know a young democracy or even a established democracy actually fall into negative territory. This is uh, uh, you know again a very puzzling uh, uh, finding. Next, uh, yeah, this is among the uh, younger generation. But the same. Okay, next. Okay, uh, and also this is another uh, very paradoxical. Okay, if you compare this with the Freedom House score of each country, okay, um, and uh, this this, this uh, trend, uh, no, this is a diagonal uh, such as that the, you know, the less uh, free country according to Freedom House actually enjoy higher higher level of original legitimacy. Okay, so this again, you know, just uh, you know to to reinforce you know, the, the general point I just give, uh, gave you, next. Okay, um, but on the other hand, you know, this is, I would say, you know, temporary conclusion that at least our respondent, you know, they are cognitively consistent, okay? Vinani citizens consider their citizen is very democratic, okay? And also deserve their support. Um, and, and, and then, you know, in stark contrast, uh, most of the third wave democracy in the region do not enjoy a deep and broad foundation of, of populist legitimacy. Okay. Now, I think people are anxious to know why that's the case, you know, how, how to explain this. Okay. Uh, in the interest time, I just, you know, go uh, through my remaining slide very quickly. Okay. Uh, the number, number one uh, plausible answer. Okay. Uh, next. Um, um, is that, uh, you know, you can say, well, this has a lot to do with indoctrination, uh, you know, censorship or oppression. So, you, you know, you can argue that uh, certainly in Vietnam, they are misinformed, you know, they, you know, they, they, they are uh, indoctrinated by the government, things like that, okay. But I, I do think this is, uh, sounds like a cliche, you know, this is like a textbook answer to this. <laughs> I, I will consider much more uh, sophisticated, you know, uh, uh, puzzling. Um, so this is, you know, something, you know, you know, we should not downplay too much, but on the other hand, we shouldn't overplay this uh, typical uh, explanation. Otherwise, you know, we'll be very complacent. Next one. Okay. The next one I think, you know, empirically uh, have found a support, uh, solid support uh, in our data. That is performing, regime performance, okay. Um, just give you some uh, concrete data, next one. Okay, on question, you know, how, you know, in terms of their perception, how government are responsive to the need of the people, okay. You have to recognize that. We not also register the highest on this particular item. Okay, so it's consistent, you know, if, People, you know, in Vietnam, who uh, see their government has been more responsive to their need than, you know, than other countries. At the same time, this political system enjoy a high degree of uh, legitimacy. 
On the other hand, you know, the people in Mongolia, actually they don't see, even though the, the government is democratically elected, but they don't think they, they are responsive. Uh, so that it, uh, it's one of the reasons, you know, why uh, the erosion of the regime's uh, legitimacy over time. Next, ne next one. Uh, another very concrete, you know, specific, uh, uh, can we go back to the previous one? Yeah, yeah. On, on the question of income distribution. Um, so in Mongolia and also in Taiwan too, a great majority of people think that uh, 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 the income distribution in, in their country is very unfair and unfair, okay? And this corresponds to a very much lower uh, regional democracy, you know, in, you know the, according to our survey, while in Singapore, actually the perception income uh, distribution, well, uh, you would say on the one hand, one third of the Singaporean, you know, don't think it's fair. It's actually, they think it's very unfair, but relatively speaking, you know, the, it's much smaller, okay? Maybe the, the, the number has gone up, okay? In recent year, uh, probably, you know, that's why um, uh, your incumbent party suffered <laughs> some, some backsliding support. Uh, but still, compared to speaking, you know, uh, on this particular indicator, Singapore uh, is doing better. Uh, you know, although this is subjective, it's, it's not necessarily consistent with Gini index. Next one. So this is, you know, again, give you that very, very uh, strong linear relationship, you know. So this is a performance indicator. Okay. Uh, then come to uh, uh, one more explanation, and, and then I will stop. Okay, I know, just one more. Okay, yeah, one more. Next. The third ex explanation is there. Actually, Asian citizens expect, you know, um, democracy, uh, you know, to deliver. Uh, you know, they don't conceptual democracy in the term a typical political scientist would, you know, would define it, you know, like, you know, uh, competitive party system, regular and free, fair election, uh, you know, uh, uh, freedom of expression, uh, things like that. No, actually what we found that a great majority of Asian citizens, they, their understanding about democracy is good governance, is clean politics, uh, is efficiency, is government can uh, guarantee their, the basic needs, uh, you know, like shelter, food, clothing, uh, they are provided for. If, a system can deliver that tangible outcome. They consider this a legitimate government and also democratic government, okay? Uh, so this is a shocking, you know, finding to a lot of mainstream political scientists. I just want to give you a final uh, chart, okay? <laughs> next, next, next. Next. Uh, can, can we have uh, just one more, one more slide? One more slide. Yeah, go, go, go down, uh, all the way, uh, continue to go down, 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 uh, go down, continue to go down, go down. Okay, right, uh, uh, yeah, this, this is fine, okay. Okay, so this is my final slide. I have actually, you know, overused, uh, you know, my time slot. See, this is what we found, okay. A great majority of Asian people, Okay, define democracy in terms of good governance and social equity, not in terms of normal procedure, nor freedom and liberty. Uh, and look at Singaporean, 
you know, about almost two thirds of Singapore, Singaporeans uh, conceptualize democracy in terms of what we call the substance democracy, not procedure, okay? And it is more so, so this is, it has nothing to do whether this society is more advanced or more uh, modernized. Because Singapore is probably the most modernized society <laughs> uh, in Asia. And same thing in Japan, also uh, established democracy, okay, modernized, but they share with Singapore, with Vietnam, with many other countries, uh, with Taiwan too. You know, uh, they, they define democracy as you know, the something, you know, deliver. So the takeaway, final takeaway is that if democracy no longer deliver, then people will withdraw their support for the system. I stop right here. Thank you for your patience, yeah. Thank you very much, Prof Chu. That's very, very useful. And I hope Pinga also felt that uh, there were <laughs> some themes in there that resonated with what he had said about uh, Singapore, uh, citizens seeking uh, the uh, question of whether the system is fair and whether it can deliver fair and equitable outcomes for them as they go to the polls. I think that's quite important. You also highlighted how uh, a sense of uh, responsiveness feeds into the question of political legitimacy. At this point, we can cut straight to your questions and comments, audience, because I think uh, there are a few that really, uh, you know, uh, 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 kind of uh, respond to the theme of uh, you know, equity, as well as whether the regime is performing well and uh, is, is actually being nudged to perform even better. Let's start with Chandra Mohan's question. Uh, uh, panelists, please uh, get ready. Chandra Mohan asked, do panelists feel that the election system in Singapore is fair? Is there room for improvement compared to what is expected of a first world nation. If the PAP was in opposition today, would the, they accept that the current election system is fair? And I think this is the theme of a responsive governance uh, system and uh, a government that effectively responds to uh, what uh, citizens are saying. So please, anyone who would like to jump in, Keiki, you uh, kick off. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Jilin. Uh, for this particular question, we did have a similar uh, survey item where we asked people how much uh, do they think that there is a need to change the election system. So when we compare across the different uh, clusters, where, uh, the conservatives, the swing and the pluralists, we found that actually people who are in the conservative cluster were in the most agreement with the statement that there is no need to change the election system. Um, there was much less support uh, by the pluralists. Um, for swing, I think there's uh, very similar proportions compared to the conservative cluster. Um, for the pluralist cluster, however, much fewer people agreed that there is no need to change the election system. So there is some um, ideas about the election system and how, um, whether it's good or it's bad and whether it needs improvement. Okay, so over to the other panelists, I suppose an election is the way in which voters can strong, send strong signals to parties and to one another as to what they uh, want in terms of policy and political system. So Derek, Pinger, uh, Yunhan, anything you'd like to say in terms of uh, changes 
to the election system or the level of responsiveness of the regime in Singapore? Uh, maybe I can say something, uh, Julian, on this uh, particular point. Um, in my opinion, the uh, elections in Singapore are free, but not necessarily fair if you look uh, at the weeds itself, in the sense that we do have an elections department, which is part of the Prime Minister's office. And then we also have an electoral boundaries review committee part of the same setup. Now, I have no problem with uh, boundaries being redrawn and all that kind of thing. But if boundaries are going to be redrawn ahead of elections, I think to have a very minimum level of fairness, uh, they should be withdrawn Redrawn. A year. Yeah, I mean, sorry, redrawn, uh, redrawn uh, a year before, uh, before the general, uh, general election. So 12 months before the general election, the boundaries can be redrawn so that all parties have a fair shot in cultivating the ground of the new constituencies okay. as, a, as a result of the redrawn boundaries. I think this is a this is a particular issue that a lot of the alternative parties have faced. But, you know, uh, the, what is fair and what is not fair is also quite subjective. I would say that all the alternative parties are given, you know, a lousy set of cards to play in the elections. But how is it that the WP is able to convert this lousy hand into a winning hand in some respects. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't put it, uh, I wouldn't put too much great store on, you know, to uh, the, the extent to which elections are unfair. But uh, the other point I want to raise is that, you know, in Singapore, we have the the first-past-the-post system. And in first-past-the-post, is a very simple concept. Either you win by one vote or you lose. Now, if you win by one vote, that is a good result. Anything that is less than a win, whether it's 44%, 46%, in my point of view, from my point of view, is not a good result because that is the first past the post system. If you're talking about a system of proportional representation, yes, all the percentages then matter quite a bit. You can, you know, can get 35%, 40%, 45%, and you will get some representation. Okay, let me stop you very quickly and ask you how you would link that to uh, local loyalties and local support and local identities very what, quickly what do you mean in terms of local support and local identities if you were to transform into a proportional representation system no the, 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 this is what local this is loyalties what I, and identities this is what i'm saying i'm not advocating right. for singapore to have a proportional representation okay. system because uh, around the world you have you have 
very different uh, forms of proportional representation. You want the most liberal one, you go to Israel, where you only need 2.5% of the vote nationally, and you get four representative uh, MPs in the Knesset. Okay, so that is the most liberal system. So I'm not. Well, let me pass the time over to Pinga and see whether okay. he has a response or, to Chandra Mohan's question as well. Uh, Yunhan, if you have any thoughts on, uh, yeah, uh, any reforms that you want to put forward. Pinga, so unmute yourself, please. Yeah, uh, I think Mr. Chandra Mohan asked a question about uh, fairness, perception of fairness. And uh, are there any reforms to the election system that you would want to see? Is there any room for improvement? I think uh, personally, I think an independent electoral commission would be desirable. Okay, next. Okay, uh, and what are the criticisms that our electoral system is less than fair and less than perfect? Okay, over the years, uh, criticisms include uh, gerrymandering. Okay, gerrymandering. Uh, certain constituencies like Puget uh, disappeared. If we can go back uh, to very closely fought uh, GRC, like Yunos uh, GRC, Cheng uh, San, uh, they disappeared. Okay, th these are the usual criticisms uh, against the ruling party. Mm -hmm. uh, but what is even uh, more infuriating to many citizens who have a sense of fairness is the practices of the ruling party. Uh, in the past years. I think the unfairness, I think, has been less blatant. But previously, it, it, uh, in the eyes of many Singaporeans, it, it was very, very, very blatant and beyond the pale. Okay, I'll give you some examples. Linking voting for the ruling regime with HDB upgrading. Okay, if you don't vote for me, you'll be served last in your estate upgrading, so your lift um, upgrading and so on. Yeah, Buying you your vote, using taxpayers' money to tie it how you vote for the regime, you know? Yeah. And uh, and even things like, uh, hey, you stay in vote, Potong uh, Pase, if you vote for PAP, we will uh, open the MRT station earlier for you guys. But if you vote for Tiam Sitong, we're going to hold it back because uh, the, the numbers of residents in Potong Pase do not necessarily justify the cost of opening this this. The station, but to, to, this is really, really uh, disc discriminatory, and I wonder why Singaporeans did not take, like, uh, to the courts, say that this is unconstitutional. Okay, why? But because you, you Singaporeans, said, Singaporeans uh, are also taxpayers. Singaporeans were... are taxpayers, and male Singaporeans like me and those after me, we serve national service. We so fight for the country. We put on uniform. So the question mark. So the question mark is: How have they changed? So this is uh, an issue of fairness. I think the system has been less blatantly so, but uh, my qualification is even in the good US of A, okay, the word gerrymandering came from the United States. Huh? It didn't come from uh, Indonesia or Malaysia or Singapore, but from the United States. But I think we can, uh, as Singapore develop, as we mature as a democracy, I think we can be a better democracy uh, to be less blatantly unfair because I think fairness, the sense of fairness is uh, very, very important. Okay, especially in public. Uh, you look at your survey, IPS survey. Fairness in public policy. Okay, and I would argue it is blatantly unfair if you put an opposition constituency at the back of the line. 
okay. okay, in terms of public so, services. Okay, thank you. Uh, Yunhan, yeah. uh, in your last slide, you actually uh, uh, disaggregated the issue of, um, you know, norms and rules from social equity. Uh, mm -hmm. Can you just uh, help us to understand what is the distinction, um, the procedural and the substantive? Uh, well, uh, in, in my slide, <clears throat> the, the social equity items refer to like job security, like uh, uh, whether <clears throat> uh, uh, government provides a social safety uh, net, and, and also whether the uh, the basic uh, needs you know the, are provided for. So these are all tangible, very tangible, deliverable, uh, deliverable uh, uh, coming from the system. Let, let, let me uh, add one comment on the uh, free and fair election. Um, yeah, election system is obviously a very uh, important uh, institutional uh, uh, design for any any democracy. And I, I agree with Derek that you know you have to be very cautious uh, in terms of uh, reforming the system. Uh, the first pass the post, obviously, it distorts proportionality. Uh, we, we all know that. Um, but on the other hand, it, it has a, uh, the tendency to try to foster a, a, a clear cut popular mandate. Uh, and, and, and usually a war mainstream candidate rather than the extreme uh, radical agenda. Um, so in, in Singapore is a multiracial society. If you adopt PR, proportional uh, representation, it might reinforce the racial cleavage. Okay. okay. Yeah, so yeah, something you, you have to, uh, to, to reckon with. But, but but I think you can still improve the system uh, uh, on the margin. Like you know, the uh, the government should provide more subsidy to the uh, opposition party. Uh, the the candidates should get more su subsidy, you know, from the public sector. Uh, uh, things like that. Uh, media coverage uh, no is no longer that important an issue because the 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 prevalence of social media. So now. Due to uh, the social media, you know the uh, penetration, uh, so the opposition can also enjoy a, a, some okay. kind of playing field. Thank yeah. you, Prof. Chu. I think in your final slide, you did show that about a fifth of um, um, your respondents did uh, sort of prioritize norms and procedures. So clearly, this is something that's important. I think uh, Pinga and Derek and Keki for also responding to Chandra Mohan's question. Uh, but uh, in addition to the electoral system in order to ensure that the signaling uh, is uh, effective. Uh, Faith Leong has asked another question on building a responsive governance system. She says, a way to know the exact complaints of the people is to have a robust feedback system that goes directly to a higher independent office, ensuring anonymity for whistleblowers. Civil servants need to give constructive feedback uh, and so on so that they have, uh, civil servants need to be able to, I think, receive feedback, I suppose. Um, so is there anything else you'd like to say about between elections? What more can, uh, um, not just the civil service, since we're talking about uh, um, you know, political parties, what else can political parties do to ensure that they uh, are um, channels for um, you know, expression of concerns, um, of issues and interests from the ground 
uh, to a national platform. Anyone? Uh, yeah, uh, maybe I can just jump in here and uh, say a few words on this, Julian. The, some people have claimed that uh, after G2020, there has been a significant change in political culture in Singapore. I really do not see that. Okay. The fact of the matter is that one indication of a change in political culture would be uh, if the government did away with government parliamentary committees, GPCs, all right, which are all PAP um, uh, sort of uh, organized committees in parliament and replace them with what you have in the Westminster system, which is uh, select commi committees that mirror all the ministries out there. And the, the composition of the select committees would be drawn from across parliament, which, which would be uh, PAP MPs, WP MPs, and even the PSP and MPs. And the select committees would, you know, like the select committee on deliberate online falsehoods, they will regularly hold hearings in public okay. and, invite, and invite, you know, expert witnesses to give their input. The, the importance of select committees is that they can provide direct input to policy making. And, and, that, I will, that, and that I will tell you, you will have participatory democracy throughout the year instead of what we have now, is, which is only once every four or five years. I believe that is the proposal uh, of the leader of the opposition, Mr. Pritam Singh, Secretary General, whose party has 10 members in the House. I think that's uh, how he'd like to structure his activities and uh, he'll have to persuade the Speaker of Parliament to do that. So thank you for reminding us of that. Pinga, any thoughts? Uh, Faith has uh, yeah. said, uh, you know, is there a need for government to find out in greater detail actual concerns on the ground? What can the political parties do uh, in addition to what Derek's mentioned? I, I think the uh, ruling party, Prime Minister Lee Hsien Loong, uh, did a very good thing by institutionalizing the role of uh, the leader of the opposition, okay, uh, to recognize the office of leader of the opposition and in a very modest way provided him with a uh, very, very, very modest as a first step, a research assistance. You know, I think all those are quite symbolic. I think uh, Pritam Singh uh, needs more research assistance you know, for public policy research and so on. Nah? That's okay. uh, pitifully few, but it's a right step. It, it is a step in the right direction. I think it's really good. And I think we should uh, actually uh, uh, give credit when credit is due. Okay, But, you, but critics will say, oh, because uh, the, the ruling party have been, uh, as a result of the results of G2020, they have to recognize reality and then they basically recognize what has been done in the Westminster system. But okay. the fact is, uh, that's a very, very good move. And I will second uh, Derek's uh, suggestions that we have some committee, he called it select committees. Because if I look at Japan, Japan have uh, subcommittees, special committees for different things like foreign affairs, a budget, and so on. And the opposition parties are also represented in this subcommittees and the subcommittees will have a very uh, fierce debate and sometimes the, the ruling party and the opposition parties may actually forge a consensus in the subcommittees and then it is forwarded to the diet which is uh, the Japanese parliament legislation 
uh, passed very smoothly and very quickly. In fact, a majority of uh, legislation in Japan are passed mm -hmm. by uh, consensus. You know? okay. The ruling party will give certain, uh, they'll take into considerations of the opposition parties, and then that will ensure the smooth passage of legislation. But much of it is actually done uh, at the subcommittees. You know? This is, okay. uh, so we should not be too hung up about uh, mimicking, mimicking or aping the West, but actually you look at other systems in Japan, in Taiwan, and Korea, they do have subcommittees and special committees. And okay, this something which you. we can uh, which we can adopt as we mature as a democracy in Singapore. Thank you. I believe there are steps taken in that direction. And you mentioned uh, Yunhan subsidies for the yes. opposition, and I think that uh, mm. uh, it was announced that uh, there will indeed be far more support for the leader of the opposition, which was also mentioned by Pinga. Um, any further thoughts? Otherwise, I'll move on to the next comment or question because uh, we're running out of time. I just yes. add a quick Good note hand. here. Actually, okay. um, uh, improving your feedback uh, mechanism, actually, it sounds a little bit outdated nowadays. <laughs> okay. uh, nowadays, actually, government or the party can act uh, proactively. Mm -hmm. uh, you have big data. Uh, you have AI. Um, and you know, it's, uh, you know, the government owns so m much information about every on everything. Okay, yes. So a very intelligent uh, organization or agency, you know, they can actually, uh, you know, have a very uh, firm grasp, okay, on what's going on and and, and what's the people sentiment, uh, what's emerging, you know, the uh, concern and needs. Uh, so I think to make government agency much more intelligent and to make the best use of those big data, that's, it's, it's very important. Mm -hmm. And can our uh, other political parties uh, um, adopt such measures? I well, yes, uh, if the government uh, also make them available, you know, to, to uh, make a lot of data, you know, uh, uh, public and free uh, accessible. All right. Um, and can, and can also, you know, the tap into this uh, big reservoir, yeah. Okay, so let me throw you a, a few more questions, not, not so much about the system anymore, but about uh, ideals and interests uh, as a way to wrap up the forum. Uh, I'm going to read a few comments out and uh, then I'll allow, uh, uh, invite the panelists to just respond to the comments or questions that they'd like to take up. Okay, mm -hmm. first question by Sui Ting Lo. How does rising the rising level of diverse views in politics affect singapore uh, will, uh, will, how will it affect singapore going forward uh, by sarah ang do you think the materialist post materialist divide in singapore politics is likely to persist the balance between materialist orientation and post materialism and how does the pandemic affect that so does it weigh far more heavily on the materialist concerns, uh, and uh, uh, you know, um, would it be therefore uh, necessary to suspend political competition and pluralism uh, for uh, to in order to address those materialist uh, concerns? Then uh, uh, another question, I believe, uh, Pinga, you you responded to this in large part, but perhaps other panelists might like to take it on. What would the trend of the PAP losing? Uh, or seeing a downward shift or slide in uh, the valid vote secured lead to a possible change in government after the next two general elections? Uh, that is a question posed by Syed Al-Samad. Um, 
finally, to uh, uh, the last two ideas, first one is uh, on media. Um, I know, uh, Yunhan, you had mentioned that, uh, you know, media is now free because you read it on the internet. Uh, it has, it's, it's a boon and a bane. Uh, but the question posed by Ng Swang Kyong is, uh, media does play a pivotal role in the election. How does Singapore compare uh, in the international uh, arena in, in terms of the freedom of expression on media? Uh, and the final one is, um, uh, I think, let me see. It's more, more a technical methodological question about uh, survey results and how uh, you know, the Asian barometer surveys were collected. Uh, perhaps that can be found uh, on the Asian Barometer website. So uh, perhaps uh, Ng Kyong could look that up there. Uh, so I would move to um, the really the last one. If anyone wants to pick this up, it's back to the uh, election system and the uh, electoral system. I would say, would it be far more fair if we take away the GRC system and institute a strictly SMC system? And I think uh, the Singaporeans will be far more fair with what this refers to. So uh, with that, it's a huge set of questions uh, and, uh, and comments. And, and I just invite uh, uh, perhaps, um, you know, um, uh, the panelists to speak in reverse order. So uh, perhaps uh, Yunhan, Prof Chu, would you like to uh, respond to any of those comments and questions and give us your final thoughts before we wrap? Uh, yes. Um, social media, obviously, play uh, increasingly uh, a very important role as a source of information and, and also uh, as, a, uh, as a place where people, you know, they uh, identify other people with the, uh, on the same wavelength, okay? Um, uh, it, you know, it, it's a wonderful device, you know, so for mobilization and for, and, and also for minority, uh, on the privileged group, you know, they can do self-cast, you know, rather than depend on the mainstream broadcast uh, agency. But 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 also at the same time, uh, people identify a lot of problems uh, come with social media. Uh, the echo chamber, uh, the what they call the digital tribalism. Uh, in the end, you know, it, it reinforced prejudice uh, and bias. <laughs> Uh, because, you know, people hang around with, you know, like-minded people, reinforce each other. Um, it it undermines, um, uh, you know, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the traditional role, the, the social, uh, the mass media play, the media, mass media play a gatekeeping role, mm -hmm. and also try to foster a kind of mainstream view uh, and, and impose certain mainstream uh, basic value standard, okay? So I think that's still important. Right. So, so yeah, so, so make the, 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 the mainstream uh, uh, media, you know, uh, uh, more balanced, more professional. I think still a, a very important task. Right. Uh, don't, don't, uh, don't, you know, uh, uh, give things that social media, you know, can play magic, you know. Right. Thank you, uh, Prof Chu. Um, uh, we, we have indicators on the use of communication channels. Uh, for those uh, who, for whom internet was uh, important, you had Facebook as number one, but you actually also had Channel News Asia on its online platforms as 
second ranking in terms of importance. So that's quite interesting. It's mass media, but online. And uh, uh, to, to Yunhan's point, uh, it, it's a call to uh, balance up the role of social media with uh, the best of uh, journalistic qualities to reinforce a strong and healthy democracy. Thank you, Prof Chu. Over to Pinga. Closing thoughts, please. Yes, very quickly, because of uh, time pressure. Uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, I, I don't think we should just uh, chop and change, change and chop, you know. Um, I mean, uh, but we can actually fine-tune the GRC system. Uh, instead of having five or six member GRCs, I think we should reduce it to four. Okay, so uh, this is a mechanism. Don't forget the original intent is to ensure uh, ethnic minority representation. Ethnic minority representation. Of course, um, uh, certain supporters of the opposition will criticize the GRC as a ploy, you know, to make it difficult for the opposition parties to, to actually organize a team of four or five or six. But as proven by the Workers' Party in Eljunit and Sengkang, that's not necessarily so, you know. Instead of losing one, winning one seat, they can win four or five seats at one go. So now the GRC is a double-edged sword. It can cut both ways. Huh? So my suggestion is, uh, uh, I would su humbly suggest, reduce the five-member GRC to four per GRCs and have more single-member constituencies so we can have uh, a mix, uh, greater diversity and so on. Uh, okay. One thing I hope that we, we have to think, how do we ensure more uh, representation women, because we always think about in terms of Malay, Indians, and so on, we, we have to think about greater representation uh, for women to have greater voice in Singapore, in parliament. I think that's important. Thank you. Uh, media, very quickly, uh, I, I don't think we have reached, you know, in the 21st century, I, I don't think, I think Channel News Asia, Straits Times, Zaopao are still a very useful sources of information, interpretation, and so on. But I don't really think that they significantly, uh, you know, socialize, condition uh, the, the views of uh, readers anymore. Uh, the Straits Times, they, they know that their readership is actually very diverse. And you can actually see when you read Tao Pao or, or Straits Times, it actually caters to a diversity of views. No? I think it's not so blatantly pro-regime. It, it is more pluralistic now. And the Straits Times, I think, over the years have, have actually reflected the diversity of the Singapore readership. Um, materialism, post-materialism, what is the balance? Uh, the reality check is that the country with the largest number of Greens, uh, Le Grenen, that's the name of the Green Party in, in Germany. And it's not Germany, but in places like France and Western Europe, those who subscribe to post-materialism and those post-materialists who support post-materialist parties like the Green parties, they yeah. are a minority in yeah. their political systems. Okay, uh, They have grown uh, from 3%, 5% to 10 to 15 and in local elections, even as much as 20. And they may even form a local coalition partners. They, the Greens may even capture uh, like a mayorship or they form the local governance in... Uh, different regions okay. in Western Europe, okay? yeah. but very often in coalition. Uh, but okay. the bottom line is, yes. I think across all political systems, the bottom line is still materialism, okay. the issues of survival, jobs, housing, transport. We cannot not, cannot run away with that. Now, so it's never exclusive. Is it materialism, uh, materialism or post-materialism? Yeah. Uh, that said, I think 
uh, we are talking about trends. And the trend is that post-materialism had risen. Right? In Western Europe, since the end of the Second World War, with the decades it had grown. In Singapore, I think it will grow more. And it's also tied with the issue of identity. Okay. So many youngsters, better educated, better traveled, more idealistic. It's aspirational. No? For materialism, is about okay. uh, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. It's about survival. Mm-hmm. But uh, post-materialism is very often aspirational. You want to do something about environment. And, and so on. Yes, thank you so okay. much, Gina. Yeah. And I think in our survey, we found that the, those who are uh, now in the pluralist box included both people who are um, of that so higher social economic class, which we can imagine would be concerned about post-materialist values, but also in 2020, yeah. uh, very yeah. many uh, at the yeah. lower end of the social economic mm. class. So even when the materialist values uh, are expressed, and rightly so, because it is, um, you know, COVID with uh, acute uh, uh, economic strain. Uh, this translates to uh, support for an, uh, a different voice from the uh, incumbent. But thank you, Pinga, for those thoughts. And over to Derek very quickly, please. Okay. Um, yeah. On the point of the GRC. So sorry about the time crunch. <laughs> on the point of the GRC, my view on it uh, remains uh, from the first book I did on a general election or the 1997 general election. That is to say that the GRC is still a single-edged sword in favour of the ruling party because a GRC is large enough that the sample size tends to you know, mimic the popular vote nationally. So that will always be the case. And there will always be outliers, of course. Uh, so I would be surprised if the PAP makes too many modifications and tweaks to the current system now. Uh, On the point of um, diversity of views, I think uh, that is quite a straw man argument that has been thrown up. I know that IPS put it in a survey and all this, and uh, members of the ruling party have suggested that that uh, that was one of the reasons why Singaporeans appear to have a greater clamor for non-PAP voices. Uh, I don't think it's uh, related to such an abstract issue. In this country, material issues are still very paramount and uh, they were accentuated during the pandemics. But now, can I just quickly just touch on a few points to just tidy up this entire uh, uh, discussion. One is that we should remember what Mr. Lee Kuan Yew said in G 2011. He said that, you know, the voters of Aljunit will have five years to repent. Well, after nine years, they have not repented. Second point is that, you know, some have said that the PAP cannot survive without Mr. Lee Kuan Yew or Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's legacy. Let us remember one thing that in G2020, the PAP did not campaign on Lee Kuan Yew's legacy. And in fact, I think this was deliberate because it, would, it might have gone down pretty badly uh, in, among a segment of voters because their only memory was what he said about HDB prices continuing to go up if the economy continues to improve. So the only person that actually campaigned on uh, Mr. Lee Kuan Yew's legacy was Mr. Lee Sian Yang. Uh, but that 
he didn't do very well on that point for himself and his party, the PSP. The third point I want to mention very quickly is that fame is very ephemeral. We have internet sensations among politicians. We had that in GE 2011, Mr. Chen Shamao and uh, Ms. Nicole Xia. Uh, but we have seen that, you know, uh, there are limitations to that fame. In GE 2020, um, Jameis Lim was both the internet and mainstream media sensation. But I will say that he is a far more substantive figure intellectually. I, I, he is actually an acquaintance because he and I overlapped as researchers <laughs> at ICs for a short period of time. Right. And uh, the last point I want to make is that, you know, in elections, you have to invest in yourself, invest in your party, invest in, your, in the process. I saw a lot of people, uh, um, you know, commenting once the elections department released figures on uh, election spending by the various parties that, oh, the PAP spends so much and all this. Um, and they were uh, sort of mocking uh, that particular approach. I think they've got it all wrong. You have to view elections as akin to fighting a military engagement meaning to say that you throw in all the resources you can up to the limits that you are allowed to do so. In this election, it was $4 per, vote, per voter. And you should spend as much as you can because your objective is to win. That is the only reason that you should stand for election to win and nothing more okay. and nothing less than that. That's all I would like to say. Thank you. Thank you so much, Derek. Keki? Final word or two before we wrap. It's six o'clock. <laughs> okay, I'll make it very quick. So in terms of the materialist, post-materialist divide, I think for post-materialists in Singapore, it's probably only a and views in uh, parliament that actually is taking more shape uh, within the electorate. So uh, the pandemic definitely has uh, is accentuated this divide because we see there are people who are more secure about the situation and people who are less and that actually changes their priorities for this time. Mm -hmm. So in that sense we do see that uh, there is this kind of divide and whether it persists really depends on whether society and the policies uh, help to shape and level uh, certain divides that can be leveled. So uh, with that, I think um, I'll leave Jillian to wrap up the whole uh, panel. Thank you. Very quick one on the GRCs. I think that uh, um, you know the six member GRCs are a relic of the past. I think that uh, uh, over the last uh, elections, it's been stated that uh, the prime minister want, wants to see uh, 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 the uh, average size of GRCs lowered and to Pinga's point closer to the proportion of representation of minorities vis-a-vis -vis majorities. Well, thank you audience for staying with us. You've been very generous with your time, but also please join me in thanking our panelists, uh, Dr. Derek DeKruna, Dr. Lampinger, and distinguished Professor Chu Yun Han for joining us uh, from the IPS research team. We just thank you for your attention. And we'd like to highlight to you that the next uh, forum in this post GE 2020 uh, series will be held uh, next Thursday on the 8th of October at four o'clock and it will do a deep dive 
into the use of media, which we've discussed this evening. Uh, and uh, then we will end the series on the 22nd of October, uh, speaking to representatives of three parties. Derek, uh, you mentioned, uh, and Pinga, you mentioned that uh, the focus uh, is usually primarily on the parties that are in parliament. Uh, so we're going to be guilty of doing the same. We will have three rep uh, parties represented, the People's Action Party, the Workers' Party, and also the Progress Singapore Party. So stay tuned to us, please. Final note, all the information that we have shared from the data will be found on the web page, uh, the relevant event web page on the IPS website. And uh, it will also be uh, accompanied by a text document, the executive summary for our findings of the IPS post-election survey GE 2020. Thank you for your time and have a pleasant evening.